I obviously lost count of how many songs we had sang. I'm sorry about that. Good evening, everyone. I would have ran up here, but by the time I got up here, I'd be so winded, I probably couldn't speak to you all. So I had to take it easy and walk. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. <clears throat> Jeremiah 29.7 reads, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is our third week to spend in this particular text, and we've looked at it from a couple of different angles. Um, I think the most foundational thing for us to understand about this text is the fact that we are indeed exiles. This is temporary, this place where we are living, this, this country, this city, this existence that we have, and it is most certainly not home. But last week we expanded that a little bit and considered that just because this is temporary doesn't mean that we don't have some responsibilities while we're here. And we unpacked what it meant to seek the welfare of the city, even though we're exiles in it. I mean, the text says in its welfare we will find our own. And so we unpacked a little bit about what that meant to seek the shalom of the city, the welfare, the peace, and the prosperity and all that that means we desire for this to be a place where as much as it depends on us is full of good things. And that means we trust God and we trust his plan and we wait on his timing. And sometimes that's difficult. Finally, this week, we're going to zero in on the part of the text where it tells us to pray. There's a power in the habit of prayer. You know, he told them to do a, a lot of other things. If we backed up a little bit, we've read it every week in verses 5 and 6. He, he told them specific things that they should do. He said, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But then in verse 7, he says, but... But seek the welfare of the city. So that tells me that apparently there was a way that you could do these things with the wrong attitude. There was a way that you could do these external things that he had just asked them without actually seeking the welfare of the city. There was an attitude that he was looking for. An approach to those around us. A demeanor that we're supposed to have that, that drives our actions and the one thing that I see in this text, the one marker that he points out, the one very specific thing that he tells us to do, specifically relating to the welfare of the city, is to pray for it. This attitude that we're have, to have is marked by prayer. If we need to discern the difference between someone who's seeking their own welfare or the welfare of the city that they're in, because sometimes that's difficult to sort out and discern, then I think one of the ways that we could tell is by examining their prayers. What do they pray for? Do they pray for themselves or do they pray for others? In fact, in light of what's happening here, I think I could take the question a step further and say, do they pray for the welfare of their oppressors? You know, we live in a pretty difficult world. 
doesn't take long to get on social media or turn on the news and see that this world is just full of, of vitriol and hatred for the other side. We live in a culture where the dominator wins the day and everything's always in competition and it always seems like it's an us versus them type of mentality and we're always the one that's right and the other side is always the one that doesn't know anything. Um, and, and yet, it's in that world that we're called to step in and be different and to have a powerful and yet difficult attitude. We're called to step into that landscape and ask the God of the universe to bring peace and prosperity to the enemy. That idea that's introduced here is a really big idea. In fact, best I can tell, and some of you can correct me on this, you may have studied more, it doesn't seem like I could find another instance in the Old Testament where we see a hint of Israel being asked to pray for their enemies. They certainly were to have a certain attitude towards them. But yet here, they were clearly being asked to do just that. And if you think about the situation that Israel was in, you see that that's a, a, a pretty powerful ask for God to, to ask of them. They were not just visiting. They weren't tourists in this city. They were in Babylonian captivity. This wasn't a vacation God was essentially telling them that I want you to offer prayers on behalf of the people who are enslaving you, the people who have ripped you out of the place where you belong and displaced you and taken you and your wife and your children and brought you to the city where you don't belong and who are profiting off the back of your free labor. For those people, I want you to offer up prayers of blessing. And I think we need to just sit on that for a moment. You know, I think we read through verses like this and we skim over them pretty quickly. I mean, yeah, we're supposed to pray, pray for them. And, and, and maybe it's because prayer has lost some of its power in our mind. But I'm also afraid that we sometimes just don't stop to consider exactly what it is that God just told them to do. I don't know if we share this in common, but I expect that we do. At my core... I do not want to ask God for the welfare of my enemies. At my core, I really don't want that for them. They're enemies for a reason, after all. And I justify in a lot of different ways that I'm sure you can relate to. It's those who aren't God's people that's the problem, right? Those living for this city, they're the ones that are the problem, not us, right? Those who might oppress us and hold us back and, uh, and, and uh, under whose um, um, uh, authority we might suffer because of our particular moral stance. Those, those are the ones that are preventing God's people from thriving. They're, they're the problem. They're the enemy for a lot of reasons, but one of it is because they are holding back the kingdom of God. And I look out at the world that we live in, and that's often how I feel about those around us. And then I take a step back, and I survey the situation, and I see all that we've learned in, actually, throughout all of Scripture, but we're learning it over and over again in the book of Malachi, and we see it right here. The power of God, the sovereignty of God over all of his creation, the way that he's working in this broken world to bring about good. And I say to myself, do I really think that anyone can hold back the kingdom of God, save God himself? 
Do I really think that anyone is capable of changing anything meaningful about the course of history save God himself? Is there anyone save God himself who can bring peace and prosperity? Is there anyone or anything that can take this nation, this, this city, this state, this country, this world, anywhere that God has not ordained? And the answer is no. So in light of that realization, I've come to see that truth be told, prayer is all we have. Prayer is all we have. It's the only chance of actually changing anything. So we can build houses and we can live in them and we can eat their produce that we grow from the gardens that we planted and we can marry and have children and we can increase and multiply. All of these things humans have done since creation when they were told to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. We can and do make choices every day that impact our material lives, but ultimately at the end of the day, the big things in life are out of our control. Now, there's a little bit of, of tension here because I think the things that we do matter. I think that God is very clear that he desires our obedience, and often it is our very actions that he uses to carry out his will in powerful ways. I look at the landscape around us, and I see there's a lot of examples of this playing out. The farmer plants, but God sends the rain. We can bait the hook, but the fish decides if it bites. We can raise our children well, but they get to decide who they will be. We can vote, but God controls the outcome. As I look at the reality of our influence, it's small, and it's totally subservient to the will of God. I think back in the Old Testament, a powerful story that we see unfold is a story of Joseph and his brothers. Many of you know how that story goes. Um, his brothers are pretty awful to him. They do all sorts of awful things. Um, they fake his death and sell him off to some people to get rid of him because they don't like him. And in all of that, we see God was working. And we get to the end of Genesis when we can look back and we can see the, 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 the fullness of the story and how it all unfolded. And his brothers kind of realized that they were in the wrong, that they've made some mistakes. And, and the text tells us in Genesis 50, 16 through 20, his brothers sent a message and they said, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even in the evil intentions of his brother, God was able to step in and intercept those evil devised plans. And he intercepted them before they even realized what was happening and he turned them into something good. There's not a person or a place or a plan so evil or so good that it, can't circum that it can circumvent the will of God. So if we work for the welfare of ourselves, if we work for the welfare of the city, the state, or this nation, and then somehow begin to think that we are going to accomplish that, then we find ourselves in a pretty tight spot. 
think we find ourselves bathed with arrogance and an unrighteous self-reliance because we find ourselves trying to offer something to the world that we simply cannot offer. But prayer, prayer is where we can intersect with the sovereign God who has power over all of those things. Now, prayer is a fundamentally difficult thing for me to kind of wrap my mind around. Some of you may feel that same way. I mean, I ask myself, is it for God or is it for us? Does it actually make a difference or does it just impact our attitude? Can we really change the mind or the direction of God? Does he listen to our prayers in the same way that we think of listening? And to be real honest, I think there's some stuff about this concept that I just don't totally understand. There seems to be some logical contradictions that I just can't quite resolve without resorting to some tricky language and all of that. And so the truth is, I just kind of have to step back and take a look at the text and see some of the examples about how prayer is used and how it's talked about. I mean, one of the first things I think about when I think of prayer is Jesus and his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, he lays out the, the model prayer for us. He tells, this is the way that you should pray. And in his prayer, he says this, Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your will be done. Is there as a core element of Jesus' teachings on prayer? And you know, we see that these weren't empty words with Jesus. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this same type of prayer in Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. In verse 39, we read, And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup fast from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, it says again for the second time, He went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done dripping off the the tongue of Jesus even his most dark and and dreadful moment was an understanding that God's will was best and a submissiveness to what God wanted now it's interesting he asked for something different than he got and that happens sometimes now now we look through scripture and we see there's other times where prayers are answered Some of you may be thinking of Abraham and when he went before God and negotiated about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, 23 through 33. Certainly an example of God appearing to modulate his will based on a request. God's going to destroy the city and Abraham over the course of several negotiations seems to talk God down from a certain number and they finally land on 10. 10 righteous people. If you can find that many in the city, will you spare it? And God says... Yes, yes, I will. It seems as if in that situation, God changed his mind based on a human's request. We see several biblical examples of of clearly answered prayers. In 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 20, Hannah prays a powerful prayer for a child, and, and, and that prayer is answered by God. She gives birth to a son, Samuel. 
In 2 Kings 20, 1 through 11, Hezekiah prayed for healing, and we see that God extended his life by 15 years. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, the Israelites cried out to God because they were being oppressed by the Egyptians and in, in their slavery. And the text tells us that God heard their prayers, and he began the process to deliver them. In Acts 12, 1 through 19, Peter has been thrown in prison by Herod and the church is praying for his relief because he's killing Christians and God sends an angel to rescue Peter and he's miraculously set free again and answered prayer. In addition to, to these prayers, um, we see other instructions on prayer. In James 4, 3 through 7, we read this. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That text began by saying, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own uh, passions. In other words, you have the wrong motives in your asking. And so we have to check ourselves when we come before God in prayer and be sure we're asking things for the right reason. This passage takes us all the way to the end there in verse 7, and it says, here's the posture to have before God. It's the same posture that Jesus had. It's the same posture we're called to have over and over again. It's a posture of submission. God, your will is greater than mine. I certainly believe God answers prayer, but it would appear his primary way of doing so is to bring the one lifting the prayer up into alignment with his will and not the other way around. In many ways, prayer is about letting go and letting God take over. If we continued reading in, in James, we could see this passage um, unfolds further what this posture towards God is to look like. In verse 7, it said, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then it goes on in verse 8, it says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, James says, the first step is not for you to, to pull God in. That's not what submission looks like, to be like, hey God, come over here where I'm standing. The first step to have this right posture before him is to pull yourself close to him. That's how prayer is supposed to work. That's the first step that we take. And once we've drawn close to him, he draws close to us. The text goes on in, in verse 10 to say, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In other words, set your, your own self aside. Humble yourselves. View yourself as less than before him. And then, and then he's in a posture to listen to you. And in verses 13 through 16, we're told to recognize the fleeting nature and that everything is subservient to his ultimate will. He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. 
So as we take these passages and we, we start wrapping our mind around this posture we're to have before God, we see that the first step is for us to draw near to God, to align ourselves with his will. And in Jeremiah 29, we're told this. He's placed his people in exile for a reason. He's going to remove them when the time is right. And while they're there, his will is for them to seek the welfare of the city that they are in, to pray for it. So this tells me that God's desire for Israel's heart was that they would submit to his plan and timing so fully that even their ill wishes towards an enemy would sit subservient to him, that they would trust him so fully that they could pray for the well-being of their enemy and understand that this was not a prayer against themselves. So how do we pray for Abilene, for Texas? How do we pray for the United States of America and this world that we live in? How do we pray for those who are not Christians and yet are making decisions daily that have tremendous impact on our lives? Well, Jeremiah 29, 7 says, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We pray on behalf of those who don't pray. We pray on behalf of those who don't believe. And we pray for welfare and not for their demise. It's remarkably similar to Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 43 through 46. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray in the same fashion that Jesus himself prayed. Again, these, these weren't empty words. Jesus put his money where his mouth was. In, in Luke 23, 34, when Jesus is on the cross, he looks over and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. That was his prayer. Forgiveness for his enemies. We're to pray like the early Christians did. Stephen did it in Acts 7.60. Stephen was being stoned for preaching the gospel and falling to his knees. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the type of prayer we're called to pray. We pray like the apostles taught. Peter echoed this refrain in 1 Peter 3.9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. We pray like this, like we see in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Now, we could do probably multiple sermon series on that verse in and of itself, but just take a glance at the highlights of what we see. There in verse 1, he starts by saying, your prayer is offered up for all people. He gives no, uh, no reservations. He doesn't hold back on anyone. First of all, then, I urge supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, be made for all people. And then he goes on to describe that this means that you pray for the government as well, for the kings and all those who are in high positions. But he gives the reason behind the prayer, the thing that we're supposed to pray for, that we may lead a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And why do we want to live a godly life, a quiet and godly and dignified life? Well, in verses 3 and 4, he says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the motivator behind our prayers. Now, I'm going to be real straight with you. If your prayers for our country are in hopes of protecting your personal freedoms or your personal property, or your quality of life because you want to live comfortably and stay in a position of prestige and power and dominance then your prayers aren't in line with God's will God's will is for people to be saved and to know the truth church I think we have to be a people who are willing at any given moment to give up any freedom any piece of property anything and everything that we have or or think we have that this thing might happen. So when we're told to pray in Jeremiah 29, 7, I have to admit that these are scary prayers that we're asked to pray. They're not prayers for ourselves. They're prayers for others. Now, as I look out at the United States of America, in many regards, it seems that this country has been a place where Christians could lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified life. And I'm grateful for so much that we have been afforded. It's been a place where we've been free to evangelize and and still are free to evangelize. A, A place where people have been willing to listen. That's maybe starting to slip a little bit. But what a blessing to live in a place where where we can come together and have these meetings and and pray these prayers without being persecuted. But I think we also feel a little bit of angst because we look out and it seems like the situation is changing. I mean, even among Christians, while we often justify our politics with religion, I can't help but believe we're often motivated by selfish gain, the desire for peace and prosperity more than the desire for God's will to be done. And as I look out, the truth is I'm not sure what direction God is taking things, but I know his will is going to prevail. I know that there's no assaults that the world can, can hurl against him that are capable of overcoming him. So it may be that this country has considerable utility left and he's going to continue using it for a lot of generations. And maybe, maybe it doesn't. I don't know and, and neither do you. But I know this. We're called to be a pray, people who pray. We're called to be a people who look out at the world around us and pray for God's will to be done for the shalom of the world, the the, the peace and prosperity of the world, for the shalom of his people so that God may be glorified and at the end of the day, people may be saved. That's what we're called to pray for. 
to pray that God would put governments in place so that this could happen and that he would remove governments that might hinder this. We need to have faith and trust in God's sovereign power to know that he is acting this way even when we can't immediately see it. So I think it's appropriate as we wind down this series to end it with a prayer. So it's a hard prayer to pray, but I think that it's a necessary one. And I would ask that you would join me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this evening in awe at the God that you are. How powerful and yet loving you are. Father, we're aware that you created us, that you provide for us, and that over and over again throughout history, you have shown your love in numerous ways, both in in the ways that you've led up to this moment and in our very lives. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you even when we can't see the things that you see. Thank you for placing us in this time and this place and for desiring our salvation and for making it possible. I pray that we would be a bold people who take advantage of every opportunity we have to show your glory to the world. Father, help us to remember that we are exiles and that this is not home. Help us to be a people who are constantly yearning for you. And Father, if we start to forget, I pray that you would remind us no matter how painful it might be. Father, we pray for peace in this world that we live in. We pray that you would guide the decisions of our leaders in powerful ways so that the truth about you could be shared and people would be saved. Father, we ask that you would be with our local leaders that make decisions every day for this very city that we live in that impacts so many things. We pray that laws would be passed that allow us to lead quiet, peaceful, godly, and dignified lives. That this would be a city where people would be able to come to know you. Father, we pray for the leaders of this state that are making even broader sweeping decisions. Father, we know there are so many different ways of looking at the world right now and and so many different beliefs by so many different people and, and so many making decisions that just simply don't believe in you, but in your providence, I ask that you would guide them to make decisions that would lead to lead to peace, that would allow us to live godly, quiet, and dignified lives. Father, we know that you are sovereign and in control, and we pray that you would bend them like streams of water and make them flow where you will. Father, we pray for the leaders of this country. It seems like decisions are being made daily that threaten us, but we also recognize as a whole we've been permitted considerable freedoms, and for that we're grateful for the peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives that we do get to live every day. Father, I pray that you would help us to choose to live that way, and you would help our leaders to continue making decisions so this would continue to be possible for everyone who chooses. We pray that this would continue to be a country where religious freedom would prevail and where people can be saved, but we also pray that this country would shift 
so that the people would have a heart to listen. Father, we aren't sure what that looks like, and we aren't sure what that might take, but we trust you, and we beg for it to happen. Be with the leaders of this world. Never before have we been so connected and exposed to so many things that are going on across the globe. We pray that believers in all nations would be granted peace and quiet lives and dignity in their choices to live godly. We pray that the lost would be saved regardless of race or nationality. And Father, we understand that you are working out all things for the good of those who love you, but God, it's hard to see it at times. And I pray that you would give us the faith to know that this prayer will be answered. I pray that you would help us to trust you, to not be comfortable, to not slip into arrogance in our wealth and prosperity. I pray that we would never forget who you are and what you've done and how all of this belongs to you and that you're in control and that we are temporary and that there's so much more than all of the things that we see around us, that we belong somewhere else, that nothing here can satisfy, that nothing will last, and that only your will will prevail at the end of time. And Father, if we start to forget a single one of these things, we pray that you would rip any distraction from us that we and our children might be preserved. That there would be nothing in this world standing between us and you. While we are small and prone to be tossed about, we pray that you would intercede and give us the things we need instead of the things we want. It's our prayer that this season of exile would cause us to lean on you and prepare us well for the day when we go home. We look forward to the day when you will exercise your power for all to see. And we trust you while we wait. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As I wrap up, I want to extend an invitation to all who are listening. You know, God does desire for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What an opportunity we have to live in a time and a place where I can stand up here and just invite you to make that decision. In fact, we're streaming this invitation out across the world wide web to thousands of people without fear. God has truly blessed us to live in a time and place where that is an option. So, so listen, while the offer is there, God desires for you to be saved. It does ultimately come down to you. Is today the day that you're going to turn your back on this broken world and join God's kingdom and begin living as an exile until it's time to go home? Because if it is and you haven't been baptized, today's the day that you need to be baptized and start that journey. Perhaps you aren't sure yet and you still um, have some growing to do and you want to study. I'm telling you, we are ready to share with you the hope that we have within us. We would love to open scripture and show you why we believe the things we believed. Or maybe you do believe that you have fallen away. You've been living in rebellion, and it's time to turn around and come home. If that's you, it's not too late. We beg you. We will pray for you. We will walk with you. The invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.